Welcome back, everyone. So this is week three of the Introduction to Mindfulness Meditation class. One of the ways the Buddha summarized this whole path of practice, he said the supreme liberation has been discovered, namely liberation through non-clinging. So if somebody asks you, what are you doing? (laughs) What kind of meditation do you practice? Or why are you practicing meditation? It's nice to speak right from the heart. We all know what it's like when the mind is caught up, is grasping or clinging, attached or identified with experience, like with an opinion, or with a sense of being right, or even more painful sometimes, the sense of being wrong, like I'm no good, I blew it. Those attachments, that kind of clinging, it's really painful. And this is the dukkha, the suffering, that the practice is aimed at. This practice, you know, this path of awakening or this path of mindfulness, it's not going to address the pain of death the actual experience of loss. But it does address the the pain that comes when the mind clings to life and we're dying, or clings to a relationship with our parent or our lover and he or she is dying, or anything we might cling to. We almost always think that the real pain in life comes from things like loss. But actually, if if you pay attention carefully, you'll see that it's more painful our fear of loss, our resistance to loss, that clinging is more painful than the loss itself. And this is something we can definitely work with and transform. We can transform this mind from a mind that clings and reacts and grasps and resists and demands and struggles into a mind that accepts and loves and understands and lets things be. And we'll still be human. (laughs) We'll still have loss. We'll still get colds. But the mind's not going to be constructing all kinds of personal problems around the ordinary ups and downs in life. One of the ways the Buddha taught was a list. He used lists a lot. You know, it was an oral tradition for many hundred of year, hundreds of years. And then eventually they started to write down the Buddhist teachings on palm leaves, which you can imagine in the tropics, was it didn't last very long. So even then, when they had it written down, it relied a lot on the people memorizing it. Even today, there are monks and nuns that, you know, although the collected teachings are quite many volumes, I don't know how many, more than 10. Um, there are people who have memorized it all. But So there's a lot of lists. And one of the lists is the eight worldly wins, it's called. Gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. And the idea, the way the Buddha used this particular list, the teaching, was that our lives inevitably swing from times when we are successful, times when we're failures, 
times when we're getting a lot of praise, times when we're getting a lot of blame, times when we're famous, times when we're infamous, pain and pleasure. And this isn't a mistake. And this is this itself is liberating just to know, like if, for example, in our formal meditation. So let's say we are able to sit every day for 30 minutes or 20 minutes or 45 minutes. And one sit is really peaceful. It's so easy because it was pleasant to think it was a good sit. Or a sit was really painful. Just a lot of physical pain, a lot of mental pain. It's so easy to imagine that we did something wrong or a failure because our sit was bad. But see, that additional piece is totally unnecessary. A pleasant sit is just a pleasant sit. It's just what it is. And an unpleasant sit is just an unpleasant sit. We don't need to add anything on top of that. Now, that's, it's easy to say, but that's pretty radical. It's like after a really good day, we want to get attached. That was a really good day. And after a really bad day, we want to get attached to the idea. That was a really bad day. It's as if somehow um, the process of grasping, attaching, identifying with our experience is fundamental to being alive. We just don't know the other way or another way besides getting attached. So that's why we experiment with something really simple like sitting in a relatively quiet place, being with the sensations of the body, being with the breath moving in the body, or being with hearing. These are the three anchors that most of us are working with, one of these three. And then, you know, sometimes, like if we're working with hearing sounds, sometimes the sounds are going to be interesting. Sometimes they're going to be annoying, like somebody is breathing loudly next to us, and we hear them breathing, and it irritates us. But whatever it is, we can let it just be what it is. That's an option. We don't have to grasp some idea that, oh, this is the most beautiful sound I've ever heard. I hope that bird just keeps singing forever. You know, I don't care if it's hard on the bird. I really like that sound. <laughs> or the bird has other things to do, and like eat. Or it's an annoying sound, and we just want it to go away. So this is what we want to see is how, because of this habit of grasping, of clinging, the mind has an experience, and then it reacts to the experience. And so much of our life is actually made up of our reactions to experiences as opposed to the experience in and of itself. And this is what we undo in sitting practice. We're just letting things come and go, pleasant sounds, unpleasant sounds, a nice breath, a rough breath, you know, a breath that feels tight or controlled, or pleasant sensations in the body, unpleasant sensations in the body. It's the, the art in meditation is to be intimate with the pleasantness, the unpleasantness or neutrality of experience without being confused by the pleasantness, unpleasantness or neutrality. So we're intimate. We're not oblivious to the fact that these sounds are pleasant or unpleasant. But that's it. We're just letting it end with that intimate recognition that hearing is like this, it's unpleasant and it's like this. So it's just that. We don't have to build, construct a sense of me who doesn't like it because it's unpleasant, or me who likes it because it is pleasant. Now normally at this point, if we're doing 
questions or comments, somebody would say, yeah, but I kind of like the drama in life. I like the intensity of really liking something or really hating or fearing something. And it's true. In a way, more than anything, we're addicted to that intensity, that drama. But if we look, and this is, you'll find yourself, you'll get lost in thought, right? Anybody not get lost in thought in their sits? Some of those thoughts you're going to get lost in are going to be intense. I mean, you're going to really chew on whatever you're chewing on. Oh, yeah, he shouldn't have done that. Or I hope this person wins the president. Or, no, not that person. And that's drama. Or, you know, I hope she likes me. Or I hope he likes me. That's drama. And then what we want to understand is, oh, that drama, that attachment, that identification, it's just mental tension. That's what it is. The mind is tight. So what is it exactly about drama that we like? The interesting thing that I can share from my experience, and the important thing is for you to see if it's true for you, is that the, the addiction to drama has to do with we're afraid, the mind in a funny way, in a weird way, is afraid of simplicity. It's afraid of silence and stillness. It's afraid of peace. Where we've been generating and getting attached to drama, to reactivity, liking and disliking, for so long that it, in a sense it's become synonymous with self, who we are. It's like the ground we live on, that, that we stand on. We stand on our dramas. You know, some people, their dramas are a little louder than other people's dramas. But all of this self-righteousness and this liking and this disliking and comparing and all of this agitating mental activity is what we take self to be. So to go beyond that is a bit of a psychological death. We're going into unknown territory because the other has been so pervasive for so long. So that's why the practice, it's not complicated what we're doing. You know, being present, being uh, intimate with the arising and passing of physical and mental phenomena as they actually are. This is not complicated. It's not even hard to do. But it's very unlike our habits. Our habit is to have one moment of experience and then a hundred moments of reacting and proliferating around that one experience. And then so much of our reaction to an experience, then we react to the reaction, you know. So that's that seeming endless train of association, one thing leading to another, over and over. We can get through most of the day without actually being, having that simple, bare, open presence. Sounds, sights, touches, thoughts are just thoughts. But with practice, we have more and more of those moments. We experience that profound peace and freedom when the mind isn't addicted to drama and instead is beginning to touch moments of the peace of simplicity, the peace of space, as opposed to the activity in the space. It's another useful metaphor, and then maybe we'll end it here and, and do our practice. I find this 
particular metaphor very helpful, and this is something that's taught this way in some of the Thai force tradition, in the Thai force tradition. This distinction between space and activity of the space. Or you could say mind, let's say with a capital M, and the activity of the mind. And because of our addiction to drama, we're focused on paying attention to the activity of the mind. And now we're getting interested in, let's say, the space of the mind, the space of the present moment. So it just take a more concrete example. You know, we could be completely obsessed about the activity in this space, the space of this room. And that's normally what we are. Like we're, we're fascinated by faces. You know, that's genetic probably. We just immediately tune into faces. And if a face looks a particular way, we feel safe. And if a face looks another way, we don't feel safe. Same with dogs. That's why dogs and humans get along. Hey, dogs look at faces too. They pick up cues. So we're, you know, we're really tuned into what's filling up the space of the room. How many times have you been in a room like this room, and you are actually <coughs> opening not to what's in the room, but to the space? So this is a metaphor for this switch from the mind uh, connecting with sense experiences and then reacting to them, to the mind being aware of the space. Now, one of the ways we learn how to be aware of the space of the present moment, or you could say equally well, the space of the mind, because this present moment, as I mentioned last week, is happening in the mind, right? This is where it's being known, is by getting interested in knowing, not what is being known, but that knowing is happening. Knowing is knowing a lot of different objects. but And you can't really separate the knowing from the object that's being known, right? But the fact is, knowing is different than the object that's being known. So as objects are being known, we're interested in the knowing. That's like saying we're interested in the space, not the object that's being known in the space. So there's a lot of talk in Buddhist mindfulness circles about awareness, about mindfulness, about knowing, because it's a relatively, it's still pretty subtle, but it's a relatively concrete way to understand this movement from the mind uh, having contact with the sense experience and then reacting to it, proliferating around it, versus the sense experiences are completely free to come and go. Sounds come and go, sights come and go, thoughts come and go, touches come and go, maybe tastes and, and smells come and go. But the mind is just letting them come and go because the mind, in a sense, is resting in the knowing or resting in the space of knowing or the space of mind or the space of the present moment. So play with that tonight when you're with your object. So some of you are working with sound. Some of you are working with the sensations, the predominant sensations of the body or just a sense of the body sitting in space. And other people are or using that classic meditation object, the breath, feeling that simple touching here at the nostrils, or some people feel the movement of the breath as the movement of the abdominal wall, expanding, contracting, right? <clears throat> but in the old style, in our usual style, 
you'll take this instruction and then you'll think, I have to bring my attention to the object, to sounds, to the body sensations, to the breath, and cling, like focus. But instead, in being aware of the breath, for example, it's not so much that the touching as the air goes in the nostrils, sure, it's being known. It's an object, right? That touching, maybe it's cool, or maybe it's hot, or maybe it's rough, or maybe it's smooth, maybe it's long, maybe it's shallow. But what's really interesting is that it's being known, right? Breathing in is being known. And you, some people, practitioners, even use that additional phrase. So from time to time, if you are noting your experience, you could say blank, whatever the object is that you're knowing, blank is being known. And really emphasize is being known. So if you're working with your body and you notice the hardness of the sits bones on the chair or cushion, right, that simple contact or pressure, you know, pressure is being known. It's as if you're whispering pressure and then is being known. Because <laughs> you want to you want to open your mind to that recognition, like this is being known here in the space of now, in the space of the mind. There's object being known, instead of this is being known. <laughs> it's the other way. We're emphasizing the being known, the sense of space, the, spe- the sense of everything is allowed to come and go. Does that make sense? Any questions about that before we stretch and do our sit tonight? Um, so as we have random thoughts that float through, we're just to identify them? Or yeah. That's basically correct. But remember, uh, we generally, people start their practice working with a particular anchor. I've suggested three, the breath, the predominant body sensations, or hearing. So the first thing that the mind is just going to have to figure out is, as this distraction arises, am I going to stay with the predominant anchor, or am I going to put the attention or give the attention to that distraction? Um, But if it's a strong, if the thought is repeating, or you can't help yourself but pay attention to it, the attention goes there, then then you would do as you said, which you'd recognize, oh, thinking. Or maybe you can be even you can recognize even more. Now remember you don't have to name it. Naming is a technique that some people find very useful at times. Other times it may make maybe too uh, agitating to name everything that's happening or so you can just see. But in any case, whether you're naming it or not, the recognition is that's just a thought being known. It's just a thought being known here and now. And you see how it keeps us from getting drawn into the story. Yeah, thanks. So feel free to stretch out your legs so you'll be comfortable sitting for about 30 minutes. It's also okay to stand for a few seconds if you want.
then when you feel ready, finding a comfortable seat, composing the body. Remember, we create a nice base with the pelvis and the knees if you're on the floor, or your two feet flat on the floor and your butt on the chair. So we create a nice base, and that base allows the spine to rise up out of the pelvis. The spine, as much as it can be, is self-supporting. One vertebra on the top of the one below it. The head rests on top of the spine, nose in line with the belly button, ears over the shoulders. You might find it helpful. Take a few easy, deep breaths, taking the time to fill and empty the lungs. Using this simple deep breathing exercise at the beginning of a set, both to shift gears from rushing to slowing down, settling down, and also as a way to more fully inhabit the body. Mostly we're up into the thoughts in the mind, so we're taking the time to let the awareness soak down into the experience of the body. Even if it's unpleasant, be willing to feel things as they are now. So maybe one more deep breath in and out. And eventually let the breath continue on its own. And we'll practice receiving the three rings at the bell. For another minute at least, continue working with sounds. <coughs> working with sounds is a nice way to remember this capacity for the mind to be open and receptive. Receiving the sounds and letting them be. Hearing is being known.
even the sound of silence is also being known at times. Can this be okay the way that it is? Taking a few moments, being present with the whole body sitting. This is a good place to practice inclusivity, opening to the whole body, not rejecting or denying any aspect, any sensations now in the body. Breathing in, feeling the body just as it is. Exhaling, allowing the sensations to be. And settling with the particular anchor you've been working with, the breath, the body, hearing. Willing to use this particular anchor to cultivate this present moment awareness intimacy, and when strong distractions arise, then simply work with them as best you can, understanding this is being known. It's like this now, and it's being known, can this be okay to allow this to be here in the space of the present moment?
the mind keeps spinning, thinking and reacting to thinking, then it can be useful to be more persistent. Just as a mother can be quite directive with her young children, the mind at times can be quite directive with the mind. Honey, bring the attention back to the body, to the breath, to hearing. Please connect and sustain here. This will be helpful. Be willing to begin again and again, no matter how many times the mind wanders and becomes reactive, spinning endlessly. As soon as you notice, take a moment, just notice what that's like to have been spinning. Appreciate now there's a moment of knowing. And then begin again with the anchor as best you can. Always be forgiving. It doesn't help to judge. It doesn't help to react. What helps is to come back with this calm, relaxed, clear presence, mindfulness.
time to time, you can notice the quality of one's attitude. Without taking the attitude personally, just noticing that the mind is colored in this particular way. The mood or attitude is like this now. Again, not to take it personally, but just to see it as a phenomenon. The attitude is just another object that can be known.
will be sitting for two or three more minutes. You might find it helpful at the end of a set to drop the particular anchor. You can even open the eyes if they've been closed. Just simply gazing toward the floor in front. It's intention for the body and the mind to be relaxed, to be trusting and accepting, and to be interested, to be alert to what comes and goes. Thoughts come and go. Sensations are coming and going, sounds and sights. We can call this the practice of not clinging or letting things be. How many times the mind picks up something, gets attached, no need to worry. Just remember it's possible to let go. The mind can let things be. And if you like this hand gesture, you can do Anjali. Bring your forehead down toward the fingertips for a few seconds. A gesture of gratitude for the time, the practice. And then take your time and stretch out your body. <coughs> See what would feel good for the body. Looks like my batteries ran out in this. Maybe I'll try it without this, but if you have trouble hearing me, I can, we have more batteries, so. Yeah, but I must have grabbed one that was old instead of one that was new. Maybe I'll just change them real quick in case somebody has trouble hearing.
explore that. We'll take some time after the sit each week just to check in and see what people are learning, what's felt really good in your practice, what's felt challenging, questions you have about the instructions. So let's see if these work. What comes to mind? Yes. And say your name, please. Um, and real loudly, so. So she asked, what's the difference between being alert and mindful and self-conscious? Well, one of the things that were it's good to emphasize, we usually emphasize this instruction in the third week, I do at least, uh, which is, you know, the, the whole process is, you know, initially being able to be mindful of things that are relatively obvious, like the pain in the knee, and then more subtle things like emotion and thought, and then even more subtle things like the understanding behind the thoughts that are arising, like what view or understanding uh, is behind the thoughts that are presenting themselves in the mind. So self-consciousness is the attitude, right? It's, it's, it can be an aspect of a view, and there's thoughts associated with a particular experience of self-consciousness that it really arises from a particular view or a particular attitude. So mindfulness, the mind that knows, isn't affected by what's being known ultimately. So it is possible to be mindful of self-consciousness. But self-consciousness, like a, you know, a lot of other experiences, it's very seductive. When self-consciousness gets triggered, a sense of shame, a sense of embarrassment, a sense of being on the spot. When self-consciousness gets triggered, it tends to trigger attachment, identification, clinging, grasping. It's not easy. It would be like graduate level mindfulness practice to be relaxed and clear with the experience of self-consciousness. So we're feeling the, you know, with emotion, emotions both have a visceral aspect but generally, there's also mental content, images or thoughts in the mind that correspond with the emotion, right? So sort of this midway between body and mind, emotion. And so <clears throat> when we're feeling self-conscious, you know, to notice the tension in the body associated with the self-consciousness and to notice the thoughts that are repeating in the mind related to that self-consciousness, but not to be confused by it. These are just sensations being known here and now, thoughts or content being known here and now in the space of the mind, in the space of the moment. But when we're invested in getting rid of it or fixing something, then we know we're caught, the mind is caught. And then just acknowledge that. You can even do it verbally in your mind. Oh, the mind is caught. And it's like this, being caught, being attached or identified with being the person who is self-conscious, that's a different experience than self-consciousness is being known, and it's like this. Just like we talked about in previous weeks. 
it's different between I'm angry and I deserve to be angry and I'm going to do something about it and oh there's anger and it's like this that's it go ahead Yeah. Yeah. So she's asking about <clears throat> this experience of maybe you could say the witness, be the observer or the witness, and as opposed to just doing. And <clears throat> it's true. And initially, it can be quite disconcerting. Um, in, a, in a funny way, we like to be blind, just operating life blindly, just plowing through it. When we, when there's a sense of uh, observing what's unfolding, observing like what the mind is saying to itself, or observing what we're doing, with that space of awareness comes a sense, an unavoidable sense of responsibility. As soon as we realize there is a mind and body unfolding right here, all of a sudden, like it or not, we have to be responsible for the body and the mind that's unfolding right here. But when we're just sort of ripping through life, flowing through life, as we say, you know, we'll take our consequences. You know, or maybe at the end of the day we'll reflect and have a sense, oh, that wasn't so good, or oh, that was pretty good. But we're not aware, we're not awake as it's happening. We're so involved, attached, caught up in the mental and physical aspects of the moment, identified with them, that we're not aware that this is what's happening. The body's like this, thinking's like this. Initially it feels quite awkward, can feel quite awkward. Um, as if we're seeing something we shouldn't be seeing. You know, like that classic scene in The Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the guy behind the curtain. It's like we don't want to know that thoughts are being known, sensations are being known. We want, those are my thoughts. I don't need to tell myself that they're being known. So what I would recommend is that you just see if, in fact, this is skillful or not for you. How does it change your life as you develop? Initially, it's not quite the right word to say witness or observer, but you know what I mean. Because it's actually not a disconnection. In fact, it's just the opposite. There's more presence. It's not, but it feels as if we're standing in an observation post looking down on our life. But actually, the experience has been right in the middle of things. Mindfulness doesn't separate us. It brings us right into the moment, knowing, oh, thoughts are like this, the mood is like this, sensations like this. But it's a, it's a dimension we're not used to, so that dimension makes it all feel weird because it's unfamiliar, not because it's actually weird or harmful in any way. How could it be harmful to be present? But the thing is, one of the things we're present to is being angry or being greedy. But it's a lot easier to be angry and greedy when we're unconscious of it. It's not so easy to be manipulative, to be needy, to be mean, 
when we're awake, that's not so easy. We just as soon not see it. So this is the choice we have to decide, or the choice we have to make, you know. Do we want to move through life in an oblivious way? Or do we want to be awake? What, what works? What actually leads to happiness and well-being and skill in the world? There's so many ways these unwholesome emotions of, you know, the different flavors of greediness, the different flavors of aversion. There's so many ways they've integrated themselves into our basic patterns. So it is slightly disconcerting, this path of awakening, and at times extremely disconcerting. But when we react to what we see, then we just notice that, oh, this is judgment. This is embarrassment. This is shame. It's always better to know what's happening than to not know what's happening. Think about a time, and you know, you can reflect on this. Think about a situation where it would actually be more useful not to know than to know. It doesn't mean it isn't painful to know, but it allows for skill. Not knowing doesn't allow for skill. We're just moving through life in automatic pilot. However good that automatic pilot is in that situation, you know, sometimes our automatic pilot is relatively skillful, and sometimes it's not skillful at all. But there's no learning, you know, unless there's some mindfulness. So I encourage you to notice that it does feel awkward, but, to, but don't let that, just because it's slightly unpleasant or, or new or awkward, doesn't mean it isn't skillful. Judge it based on what it sets in motion, not whether it's awkward initially. And it, is, it doesn't remain awkward. It's just initially it's awkward. It can be, at least. Yeah, thanks for that question or comment. Other thoughts come to mind? What have you been learning? Yeah, in the back. Oh, Sam. It's one thing I've noticed that doesn't happen as much when I'm at home, but does happen here sometimes with the way that I'm sitting, is sometimes I do get like a pain in the knee. And I try to use that as an anchor, and I draw myself into that, and I'm just aware that that's kind of the experience that rises to the top and is unfolding. And I find that I'm able to have longer periods of continuity of staying in the moment, but it, it almost dominates the entire experience, just being intensely aware of one specific thing, where instead of drifting from various awarenesses you know, back to the breath or something like that, it's just, it just stays intensely focused on one thing. And I'm wondering if there's a way that I can kind of draw myself back from that easier or something, or maybe that's not the right thing at all. Yeah, good question, Sam. So if you didn't hear him, he was just saying that sometimes he'll have like strong pain and it tends to draw his attention in and uh, can dominate the sort of unfolding of experience for quite a while and different than when his mind is aware of different objects at different times moving from one predominant object to the next. And uh, pain can be quite a, uh, a useful object and everybody is going to have to work with pain you may not have a choice except maybe to adjust the leg to reduce the pain. But generally speaking, as long as your mind is mostly relating skillfully, not with greed, not with aversion, not with distraction, with the predominant object, then it's better just to let it be. But when you find that you're not actually with the pain in a balanced way, but you're like using tension to maintain your sit, to get to the end of the sit, well, we don't want to practice getting tight, because we're doing that a lot. 
And the whole idea is to practice in the opposite direction of opening up and relaxing. But as long as you can cultivate a relaxed, uh, a relaxed presence. Now, it's going to be very easy with pain. The nice thing about pain, as Sam suggests, it's very easy to get focused on it because it's calling for attention. So the attention just goes there naturally. So the alertness part goes very easily with pain. But of course, the relaxation part, the acceptance part, isn't as easy. So really emphasize that. And what really helps when you're paying attention to pain is just check in with the whole body from time to time. And just remind, oh, honey, it's okay to be relaxed. Just because there's pain in the knee, the jaw doesn't need to tighten, the shoulders don't need to rise, the eyes don't need to squint, the anus doesn't need to be tight. The whole body and mind can be relaxed. And that could be your barometer. Uh, can I relax with this pain? Can I trust it? As if it were never to go away. And it can be very powerful. And then if, if you find that the mind's getting exhausted, even though you've been skillful with the pain, but it's just getting exhausted, or the pain is intensified, and you can no longer be with it in a balanced way, then make an adjustment, you know, as quietly and with as much mindful presence as you can. Stretch out the leg or stand up for a couple minutes, you know, and you could just make that all part of your practice. So now your anchor would be the different sensations as you begin to move and you're standing, let's say, for a couple minutes. And then once you sit down, that won't be a predominant experience and then you'll have that more, you know, maybe you come to the anchor and then the attention gets drawn into some distraction and then you come back to the anchor and then there's a different distraction. And we just learn different things. Pain can lead to deep states of concentration if you can cultivate relaxation, the mind not getting tight around the unpleasant sensations. It's a real transformation to be with unpleasant experience without getting tight. It's a skill we could all use. Because then, you know, there's a lot of times in life when things are painful. And if we get tight, we're just not going to as creatively respond to the situation as we will if the mind remains relaxed and nimble. Did you have a comment or question? Thank you for your response. Oh, you're welcome. Other thoughts come to mind? Yes. Say your name. Cynthia makes an important point. She said that she was aware of the space of the mind or the present moment. And when that was happening, she would notice a sound or a sensation, but she didn't feel as if her attention had to drop around. That's a very subtle and important point that you've made and seems right on uh, how the practice unfolds. So when we do when the mind is able to make that switch from focusing on objects, which is the tendency of our mind, and often how we begin to sit, especially if the mind is stressed or 
really distracted when you begin your set, like after the end of a busy day, then you might need to sort of be pretty parental and persistent. When you say, honey, you know, attention, come to the breath, come to the sitting, come to the hearing, over and over again. You're, you're relying on that tendency the mind has already to focus on objects, but now you're having it, you're training to focus on neutral objects as opposed to what this person thinks of me. That's not a neutral object. That's a charged object. But breathing in is a pretty neutral object. Feeling the body sitting is pretty neutral. And that will calm the body down. When the body and mind is more calm, then we're going to be able to intuit. This is a subtle movement that Cynthia talks about and that we talked to, I talked about before we sat tonight. The subtle movement of being aware of the space of the present moment. Right? In this moment now, there's sounds and sights and thoughts. And where are all those sounds and sights and thoughts being known? They're being known here. Knowing is here. Knowing is now. And when we have a sense of the space, and the mind's not fixated, attached to objects, then what Cynthia was pointing to is a, a kind of inclusivity. Or... Another word that's useful is wholeness. So instead of a fragmented experience, there's a sense of wholeness or unity in one's experience. And even though different things, there's a diversity of what's being known, what dominates the mind is the sense that they're being known here. And that creates a sense of unity. And that's the direction we're going with practice. And then it becomes easier and easier, doesn't it? as opposed to me focusing on this and then focusing on that and then wondering, should I go back to here or stick with this object? There's a sense of, I'm already at home. I'm home in the present moment. I'm home in the space of knowing. And things are coming and going in that space. And you can use this with your anchor, you know, whether it's the predominant sensations in your body or hearing or your breath at the nostrils. Instead of thinking, I'm bringing my attention to the pain in my knee, or to the sensations of the next in-breath coming in, or to that sound. It's more like resting in the space of knowing, and the sound is arising right there, and the breath is arising right there, and the pain in the body is arising right there, and that mood of being irritated is arising right there. So everything presents itself. All the objects come to the space. That's the only place they can present themselves. They have to present themselves in the space of the mind. There's nowhere else. So once we learn, once we intuit how to rest in the space of the present moment, then the practice takes a step towards effortlessness, where all we're doing is remembering. That's the work of practice now. Remembering to rest in the present moment, in the space of the mind, and let things arise and pass. Mental things arise and pass, like thoughts and emotions. Physical things arise and pass, like sounds and sights and sensations, smells and tastes. Everything comes and goes here in the space. Thanks for that wonderful observation. Other thoughts come to mind? What have you been learning? Yeah. Say your name. I, said, um, I seem to be, when I meditate by myself uh, at home, I seem to be you know, more conscious of time. I have this idea, okay, 20 minutes, and then some, some days it's 10, some it's 15. So there's a kind of an admonishment going on as well. So I don't know 
why, if there's any uh, trick or process in kind of changing that, that mindset as far as being more conscious of the time. Yeah. Yeah, I wish I had mentioned this a little bit earlier. Uh, first thing, and maybe you're doing this, Ed, but first thing is it's nice not to have a clock or a watch by you. So, you know, if you can with your smartphone or get uh, go to Target by a little kitchen timer, but uh, make sure the alarm isn't too loud. If it is loud, like if you have a just a t regular timer, like a kitchen timer, wrap it in a towel, put it behind you so you're not inclined to unwrap it and see how much time you have left. So you have to have confidence that the timer will ring. <laughs> and you won't be there for the rest of your life waiting for it to ring. God, it feels like 10 years. Could it really? <laughs> Only to find that the battery ran out or something. But uh, it's nice so you don't have to think. I mean, you'll still think about the time. But now you can counter that fear that this is taking too long or something with the confidence that I can trust my smartphone to tell me when. And by the way, for those who have the higher end things, you can um, get apps that, uh, like, you know, search for a meditation timer, and there's some neat little simple, and then you can check the, uh, you know, put the amount of time, and you'll get a nice gong like sound um, at whenever you want it to ring. And uh, yes, yeah, quite nice. So then you don't have to worry about the clock. And then that, that feeling of, uh, wanting the sit to be over or wondering if the sit should be over. That, of course, is just a phenomena, a mental phenomena that's arising in the moment. And it's a seductive one. But now, like in hindsight, you can get, oh, yeah, I get. I get what, what it is. I get why it's seductive. And you can resolve not to miss it, meaning not to miss it as a present moment object. So instead of immediately getting identified with the irritation or the fear or the, the desire for the sit to be over, that you can actually see it as a, a mental um, object that's being known. Oh, this worry is arising and being known here, now. It's just this. It's unpleasant. The unpleasantness of this thought is like this. So you're inclusive. You're including all of this, but you're not confused by it. That's the idea. That's the practice. You know, or you're partially confused and partially clear that it's just a thought, just a thought being known. And when we say something like it's just a thought, it's not an admonishment. We're not like putting that phenomena down. Oh, you're just a thought. It's just a simple recognition, a truthful recognition. That's actually what it is. You know, the thought this sits going way too long. It feels like reality, but actually. It's just a thought. And that's a world, literally a world of difference. If we believe it's reality, it is reality. And it will have the weight of reality. I'm here wasting my time. I've got a lot to do. It will feel like that. But in the next moment, or in a different moment, we could recognize it as just a thought. And it will be very light. It won't be a problem for anybody. But it's, you know, that's good work. And these little things are huge. And of course, when you're in a group and at common ground like this, we get swept along by the cumulative intentions of everybody here. It's easier to practice in community. But that's OK. We, that doesn't mean we learn more. It just makes it easier to do it. Yeah, thanks, Ed, for bringing that up. Maybe time for one or two more comments? Anything? Yeah. 
What's your name? Connie. Connie. Um, you're talking about thoughts. We have these thoughts that come, and then there's judgments of thoughts. The judgments are thoughts, too, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it seems like a different kind of thought. Like, how do you have a thought and... Well, I don't know. I guess I'm saying that I have a judgment coming about it. It's just the next thing that's arising in the mind, you know, and generally if the experience, let's say experience A is pleasant, then what comes next is conditioned by what just was there, right? It's There's two things that make this arising, whatever it is, the way that it is. What's happened before and the attitude that's present now. <coughs> And then that leads to whatever's arising. That sort of conditions what's arising now. Otherwise, it's strict determinism. Like what happened before determines what's happening next, and then that determines what's happening after that. But there are really two inputs. What happened before, obviously, is important. But how the mind that's knowing the objects that's ha- that happen, you know, that is coming out of the past, the mind that's knowing it, that knowing also conditions it. So if the knowing is a moment of pure mindfulness, that has a big effect. If the knowing is colored by greed or colored by aversion, then that has an effect. So I can see something, I can see somebody yawning, and uh, the seeing the yawn is one thing, and it, it will trigger a lot of my dispositions. You know, like, they don't like what I'm saying. But that's going to happen no matter what. You know, when I see a yawn, it will always occur to me, well, maybe the person's bored. But when my mind is narrow and uh, neurotic, then that trigger is going to have a much more powerful negative effect than if my mind is really spacious and uh, content and happy. You know, <clears throat> so both things matter. Does that address what you're... Yeah. I might have gone off in another direction. Yeah, last question. Um, I'm Jenny. Uh, I don't mean to be obtuse, but when you say, can this be okay, should I answer? And what if the answer is no? Well, can that be okay? You know, literally, I mean, I'm not being funny, but... See, and it's really more about holding the question. So she's asking, maybe everybody heard it, but in case you didn't, you know, can this be okay? No. So that's just the next thing, isn't it? Saying no, this is not okay. So that's the experience. The mind is knowing the experience of no, this is not okay. So that's an experience. No, this is not okay. That's a thought being known. It can be at least a thought being known. Or it can be me feeling that it's not okay. So there's, you know, just depending on how much wisdom and mindfulness is present, it's either, no, it's not okay, me, it's not okay, or an observation, a knowing of that thought. Oh, that's the thought, no, this is not okay. When we're living inside the thought, so to speak, it's heavy, it's painful, it's suffering, it's stressful. When there's a sense of space, that this difficult experience is being known here and now, it's not so difficult to be with. So this is the amazing thing about the practice. No matter how deep we get into reactivity, 
in the next moment, or in that moment, in a sense, there can be a recognition, oh, this is just something being known. We could literally be in the middle of hell. Our partner's divorcing us or leaving us. We've lost our job, found out we have cancer. We've stubbed our toe. You know, there's no food in the fridge. And who knows what else. And, you know, just imagine the kind of pain and confusion that would arise in the mind. Now, it may seem uh, superficial or inappropriate even to say this, but there can be a, uh, a response, a recognition, oh, all of this pain is just here and now. It's just something being known here and now. We don't have to let the mind get drawn into identified with the story of being the victim of all these terrible things. And what am I going to do? Now, I'm not saying that we don't have to decide what we're going to do. But in the moment before we plan, before we do the next thing that needs to be done, in the moment before that, there can be a recognition. This pain is being known. Now, it sounds a little unbelievable, but the key is you have to practice this and see what happens when you practice this. So the next time you stub your head, bump your head rather, or stub your toe, or get stuck in traffic, or be shamed by somebody, then just there in the quietude of your own mind, you don't have, no one has to know what you're doing, just simply recognize that that emotional pain or that physical pain is just something being known. And compare that to the times when the mind gets identified with the pain, becomes the pain, the one who has the pain, and acts out of that. And then just follow how your life unfolds under those two scenarios, being identified, attached, being aware. And you just get a sense what's more skillful, what causes more pain and suffering. So the key is the asking of the question, opening the mind. That's, you're not demanding that this be okay. It's not that. That's why you put it in the form of a question. And remember, all of these are just instructions. And you know, I, I give a lot of different instructions for different personalities. Some are going to make more sense than for others. So just experiment. If something's not working, like a particular question, can this be okay, just doesn't work, all that does is trigger a reaction in your mind, then put it aside. Don't use it. Find another way that still fits the general instructions, but not that particular instruction. So just a couple minutes left. I, you probably picked up, but if you didn't on your way out, you can pick up the instructions for walking meditation. Last week's notes cover both week two and three. I'll have uh, new notes next week for week four. But in addition to this night, uh, you have the instructions for walking. So besides sitting, if you can, hopefully every day, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, something like that would be great. But even five minutes is better than no minutes. So don't go to bed without practicing. Really important. Give yourself these six weeks. See if it makes sense. See what you can learn in these six weeks. <coughs> But on top of that, experiment with walking practice. Find a place. It's not so easy now to go outside, but maybe there will be a warm day where you're not going to be watched by a lot of people. It's nice to have a lane 
as opposed to like walking around Lake Harriet or something. Because the trouble if you're just out for a walk through the neighborhood is once your mind starts to wander, there's not going to be any point to remind you that you're practicing. And so you won't stop wandering until you get back home. And you go, oh yeah, <laughs> I was going to practice. But if you have, you know, like the length of this room would be perfect. Now I know most people's living rooms aren't this big, but just, you know, as an example. And then you compose yourself at one end. You're just standing there feeling your body standing. You have the resolve to be mindful. And you just walk at a normal pace until you get to the end of your lane. And you, instead of like the breath being your anchor or sensations of sitting, it's the actual movement of the legs and feet. You know, just the simple experience, experience of lifting, moving, and placing. Or if that's too much, just lifting and placing. Or if that's too much, just placing, 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 right? So it's very simple. Depending on the pace, the slower you walk, the more you're going to feel. You can feel those three points, if not more. Lifting, moving, placing. But if you're walking more at a normal pace, it may be only placing, 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 or touching, touching, touching. So again, you can note, you can use mental noting if it helps, or don't use it if it's not supporting the mindfulness. But in any case, you're just physicality, walking, 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 stopping, standing, Right? Really, that breaks the distraction if you got lost in thought. Standing, being mindful of turning, standing. See, all these little touch points to bring you back to the present moment. Okay, I'm done turning. Standing. And really connect with that experience. So standing's like this. Standing is being known here, now. And then walking again. And remember, this is a practice of freedom. It's not a practice of getting tight. So when you're experimenting with walking practice and you're getting tight, stop right there. And say to yourself, honey, this is a practice of being free and happy. It is not a practice of being tight. What is the need? What is the purpose of getting tight? Can I do walking? Can I walk from here to there in freedom, not in tightness? Okay, let's try it. Being a free human being, walking, aware of the body, doing its thing. Why should that be so hard? And every time it is hard and you find yourself caught or reacting or bored or doubting, then stop and notice that reaction. Oh, that's just the reaction being known. Most of the learning happens when patterns, these habitual patterns, interrupt our practice. And we get to see them. So don't be angry about these patterns. Learn from them. That's the whole point. Don't give up. Just keep doing it. And keep learning from what gets in the way of that continuity of a relaxed and clear presence. What is in the way? So it's not about making the mind relaxed and clear as much as it is noticing what gets in the way and seeing that it can be abandoned. What gets in the way and seeing that it can be abandoned. And noticing what gets in the way and then using it to get in the way again and again, right? We get identified with like being a failure at meditation. And then we realize, well, that isn't what leads to the abandoning of this problem. Just accept it. Oh, it's like this. This is being known. Then it goes away. Everything goes away on its own. Think about all the horrendous emotions and evil thoughts and beautiful thoughts we've had, and they've all come and gone. So we don't need to worry about what arises to disturb our practice, because it will go away. Guaranteed. That I'll guarantee. 
<laughs> so I need to leave it here. If you have any uh, questions, you can always come up at the end of a program.